it's your girl E and welcome to The Call, where we hear from wildly inspiring women about their journey to answer their life's calling. How are you this week? I really hope that wherever you are, you're feeling good because I am. And I want to know if this woman sounds familiar to you or if you recognize her based on this description, okay? She tries to walk not too fast and not too slow. She doesn't want to attract any attention. She pretends she doesn't hear the whistles and cat calls and lewd comments. Sometimes she forgets and leaves her house in a skirt or a tank top because it's a warm day and she wants to feel the warm air on her bare skin. Before long, though, she remembers. She keeps her keys in her hand, three of them held between her fingers like a dull claw. She makes eye contact only when necessary. And if a man should catch her eyes, she juts her chin forward, makes sure the line of her jaw is strong. When she leaves work or the bar late, she calls a car service. And when the car pulls up to her building, she quickly scans the street to make sure it's safe to walk the short distance from the curb to the door. She once told a boyfriend about all these considerations and he said, you're completely out of your mind. She told a new friend at work and she said, honey, you're not crazy, you're a woman. That was actually an excerpt from writer Roxane Gay's What a Crazy Woman Thinks About While Walking Down the Street. And it's one of the fabulous pieces included in her new short story collection, Difficult Women. When I saw that title, Difficult Women, it immediately resonated with me. Not just because many of us feel like that crazy woman walking down the street, but many of us have at some point or another in our lives been called by someone, a colleague, a lover, a friend. We've been called difficult or crazy. No matter how many times we slap on the bumper stickers that celebrate us, the ones that say things like well-behaved women don't make history or post Warsan Shires for women who are difficult to love on Instagram, there's something in many of us that still craves likability. So every now and then we, we still shrink or we shame the parts of ourselves that make others uncomfortable or cry when some social cue indicates that we're just too much, too something, too demanding, too blunt, too ambitious, too honest, or my personal favorite, and the one I get, too intense. Now look, I'm not saying that any of us are perfect. There are always ways that we, like everyone else, can grow to be better and healthier humans. But Roxanne's work aims to celebrate those women who are called difficult, women with complicated histories who share uncomfortable truths. So I desperately wanted her on the show because in these times, my goal, my personal goal is to be as wild and free and ungovernable as possible. And that will undoubtedly be considered difficult by a lot of people I come into contact with. And that's why for this episode, I broke my hard and fast rule here on the call and did the interview. Dun, dun, dun over the phone. The sound quality isn't as great and I don't get to gaze lovingly into my guest's eyes. But Roxanne was on the road during her book tour and she was gracious enough to take time out to talk to me. So look, I took what I could get. She speaks like she writes. She's direct, to the point, clear, and with power. And so whether you're a fan of her previous work like Bad Feminist or of her amazing Twitter account, you're going to be glad to hear her voice today. Hear her encouraging all of us to be a bit more difficult. So without further ado, here is Roxanne Gay on the call. Calling, 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 calling you, calling you. So Roxanne, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the call. You are now in the throes of your book tour, correct? Yes, I am. 
and you are promoting Difficult Women, which is a, a collection of, of short stories that I was surprised to discover had been previously published elsewhere. So all these stories have been published before, every single one? Yep. The stories in Difficult Women are actually some of my older work. And so all of the stories have indeed been published. I'm always fascinated by the idea of work being given a kind of a, a second life. And I'm, I'm curious to know how how you feel about that or, you know, people tend to judge success by scale. And so now someone would look and say, wow, you know, Roxanne is so successful because millions and millions of people are reading these stories and it's already an L.A. Times um, bestseller. But I'm curious to know how you felt when they were published before. You said these were, you know, older works. Um, did you did you judge your work by uh, scale, by volume, by how many people were reading it? Or was there some other kind of metric of success for you as a writer? Oh, I never judge my work by scale uh, because um, you really lose sight of what matters when you do that. And so <clears throat> when these stories were published, each time it was a thrill. And most of these stories were published in smaller online magazines, many of which are no longer even in existence. But it felt like I had reached the peak of a mountain each time because in so many ways, that's what publishing is. You climb and climb and climb and always wonder if there's an actual destination. And then you get there and realize, oh, this is what it looks like from here. And I, you know, I still feel that every single time I publish something somewhere or I achieve something new. Wow. So the, you said um, kind of if you look at scale, you aren't able to really appreciate what matters. And so part of it, it sounds like what matters to you is is the sense of that thrill, that accomplishment of having done it, having done the thing. Writing itself, the act of writing is what's the thrill. And is there any, where does the, the audience come into play then? Is it that you hope that they, you know, it's an added benefit if there's a certain reception or an added benefit if they're touched or moved in a certain way, but really it is the writing itself that is is the satisfying component for you? It's the writing, but, um, you know, I don't think about audience when I write. Uh, I, I write for myself and the kinds of things that I would like to read and see out in the world. And then that there are people who read my work and seem to enjoy it is an added bonus. And it just makes, it's just um, the icing on the cake, really. Yeah, that's such a valuable perspective to have because I think we we live in a world right now, maybe it's always been this way, but um, especially now, I think with social media and, you know, and likes and followers where scale seems to be so important and that that is how um, people are taught to measure impact. It's it's hard to kind of remember that, no, the joy is in the doing, the accomplishment is in, in, the, in the doing of the thing. So that's really, really valuable. Um, so in hindsight, oh, uh, you can't ignore like the realities of the market. I mean, that it's about supply and demand and that as writers, we are, um, you know, we have to supply something good and something interesting and engaging. But a lot of writers um, and it's not our I don't think it's our fault as writers, but it's easy to lose sight of the joy of writing when you are faced with the realities of publishing, which is an entirely different thing. Mm hmm. So how do you know when it's good? When is it good enough for you? Oh, I don't know. I just feel it. When I write something, I read it aloud. And when it sounds right, literally, to my ears, that's when I know, okay, this is something that's ready 
to send out to an editor. Mm-hmm. And so you you wrote these stories, you published these pieces, you had the thrill. It it was good to you. It sounds kind of like the Bible, and God said it was good. Um, and then now, in hindsight, you're able to package them in this beautiful collection that you call Difficult Women. I love that that name and that title, and there's a piece in the book where you talk about that a little bit. But I'm curious, when did you first realize that you were difficult, a difficult woman, or that people would perceive you in that way? Oh, I think I've long been perceived as a difficult woman because I'm very weird and awkward socially, and I'm picky about certain things and particular about others. And I have a lot of opinions, and... I'm very stubborn, so I have like basically all of the worst personality traits. <laughs> I mean, I'm I mean I'm normal in person. I'm because I'm really shy, so it's not like anyone would really know. But the people in my life know that I'm difficult, or some of them anyway call me difficult. And I, I don't know, probably since I was like fourteen. <laughs> And was there was there a point in your journey when whether it was when you were 14 or even up till now when you decided and that's OK or I don't care if people think I'm difficult? I, I think that it was less difficult or I wish you perceived me differently, but it's OK to be who I am. And uh, that's a work in progress. Certainly, it's something I'm still trying to to believe, but I believe it more now than I did when I was in my 20s, that's for sure. That's great. And it's it's interesting. There's a, an interview you did on This American Life, and you were talking about the fat acceptance movement a little bit. Um, and you said that, you know, in relation to people who feel like, this is who I am, and I don't care what people think, you said, that's admirable, but I'm not there yet. Um, I certainly am not. I don't know many people who are, but I'm curious, is that a goal? Is it a goal for you to get to a point um, or should it be a goal where we can say, I don't care what other people think? I, I, it's not a goal for me. I want to care less about what people think. And I want to filter. I want to have better filters. Uh, but I do care what the people... I think it's okay to hold your loved ones to certain standards or expectations. But that's the problem for sure. is that all too often, the standards and expectations that we hold one another to... Are, are unrealistic. And so we also just have to be more realistic about what we can expect from one another. You talk about uh, likability. Um, I, I noticed that as a, as a thread or a theme in a lot of your work, women who might be perceived as unlikable. Um, and you have this this quote in a BuzzFeed piece um, where you said, likability is a very elaborate lie, a performance, a code of conduct dictating the proper way to be likable, wanting to be liked. Um, is that kind of what you're talking about when you're saying that we hold people to these standards, that there's this lie or this um, way that we're supposed to behave that you kind of really don't really have a desire to, to hold hold yourself to? Um, in part, I mean, mostly I'm just referring to just the ways in which we expect people to be everything that we need them to be at all times, and that's just not realistic. And likability is, is similar, where we feel like, and especially women, have to behave in a certain way, and you know, we have to make ourselves small, and we shouldn't raise our voices or have opinions or ask for anything that we actually need or want in order to be terrible. Uh, and likability becomes really, we want you to erase 
all semblance of personality and and that's right it's it's all semblance of personality and and frankly all semblance of humanity right which is inherently messy and inherently flawed um but i guess you know my struggle and, and the struggle that i know a lot of other women have and people in general but certainly women is the gap between okay i don't need to meet this this an unrealistic standard. I don't need to be likable if likable means not having a personality or identity. But also, I want to be a good person. I want to be nice. I do want, you know, people in my life to like me or to enjoy working with me. How do you calibrate that and decide, okay, what is what is just white noise, if you will, and what is, you know, realistic critique that I need to respond to in terms of my my personality, my identity, the way I I live in the world? I really just look at the spirit in which critique is being offered. And if I feel like it's being offered in good spirit, then that's when I listen to it. And I do listen to critiques all the time because um, we don't have all the answers, no matter what we'd like to think about ourselves. But when criticism is being offered in a really disingenuous way, uh, that's when I tend to ignore it and to recognize it for what it is, which is not criticism, but rather just thinly veiled insults. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and those those kind of reign supreme on social media. Has there ever been a time, I'm curious, has there ever been a time, because you are prolific on Twitter, um, where you feel like you've gotten meaningful critique or engaged meaningfully with criticism on social media and only on social media, not like, oh, I somebody I know offline, I then engaged with deeper, but like someone I don't know said something to me online and it made sense and I listened to it. Not that comes to mind, but I know it's happened once or twice. I mean, there are definitely people with whom I have had difficult but nuanced conversations with um, on social media, but they are the exception and not the rule. Most people on social media who are being critical toward me are just being hateful. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> I have absolutely had that experience. Um, which brings me to a, a one way that you have been uh, in the news recently, not just because of your work, but because of a stance you took a about your work. Uh, and I remembered the kind of eyebrow lift, eyebrow raise moment I had when you uh, decided to pull your book, your upcoming book from Simon & Schuster, because they were also publishing uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, um, who many of us, if you are a woman, let alone a woman of color. Hello, can you hear me? Oh, okay. I was going to say, if you're a woman or a woman of color or a woman with opinions online, you may have run into him. Um, you decided to pull your book. And I'm curious to know, what was the calculation that you went through in your mind before making that decision? Or was there? Was it just kind of this impulse where you're like, nope, can't do it? Um, I was supposed to turn my book in, uh, How to Be Heard, in January. And I was thinking about it. And then the president or the editor, the head, the, someone high up at Simon & Schuster sent Simon & Schuster authors a letter explaining the decision to buy Milo's book and saying that his book wouldn't include hate speech. And I was not moved by that letter. Even though I like this book and I like this project and want it out in the world, I just don't want to be at an imprint, at a, not at an imprint, at a publisher that would support someone like Milo. And it's not about free speech because he's absolutely entitled to his opinions and he's entitled to publish them. 
But I don't think that he or anyone, and I include myself in that, is entitled to a major book deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, I also thought, the thing about Milo is that he's not a true believer. He's a provocateur. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he likes the attention and, and he knows how to rile people up. And he likes being a contrarian. And what what so I don't find him particularly interesting or dangerous, but his followers believe. And I just think it's so dangerous, which is also the title of his book, ironically, um, to, to just give a wider platform to his work. And so, you know, his book is going to do well. And that's exactly what Simon & Schuster wants. And that's totally fine. That's capitalism. It is what it is. But I don't have to publish my book with them. And it's a very small gesture. And I certainly didn't think it was going to be a news story. I just mentioned it casually online to a friend. That friend happens to work at BuzzFeed. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the fact that you think that's a small gesture is hilarious to me. That is huge. Oh, it doesn't feel huge. I mean, it's just me pulling a book. And a lot of people have interpreted it in very, interpreted it in very strange ways. And the free speech thing keeps coming up. But, I mean, he's still freely speaking. It's fine. Like, right. the world continues to turn. I'm actually surprised that the TED imprint didn't didn't decide to like move elsewhere because TED is all about po- not even positivity because I'm not a positive person but TED is all about like sort of how do we make the world a better place. Right. Yeah, that was really surprising. I just don't feel like I can publish a book about sort of how to be heard and how to use your voice to create social change uh, at the same place that a book about whatever it's going to be about. Um, from someone as as just as hateful as Milo. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that you... um, I was interviewed Sally Cohn earlier, and we were talking about you briefly. um, And I was telling her how, you know, how amazing of a gesture it was, you know, whether there's long-term impact from it or not, it it was an amazing stand. And I think... And she was like, you know, she said, you're publishing your first book now, aren't you? And I said, yep. And that's... I think that's probably why myself but so many other people see it as such a huge gesture because typically when people are taking a stand it's evaluated by how much perceived risk there is right and so for for most people who can't afford to turn down a book contract or who say you know what nope i will publish elsewhere right that is it's such a powerful thing to be able to say so i'm curious to know did you feel like there was any risk or any cost to you any like real cost to you in doing that no, I mean, I, I, I made a calculated professional decision, and it was also a personal decision. Um, I could afford to make this stand, and I've received several offers that were actually way better than the offer I got for the book originally. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> I, um, I had to finish Hunger first, which is out in June, and so I haven't had time to deal with it, but... Um, once hunger is done in copy editing, then I will be figuring out what to do with how to be heard. And so, um, the book, it's going to, I'm going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, when have you taken a stand that you felt like cost you something or, or that you felt like was an actual, um, risk for you? Well, I mean, I think every stand is a risk. I mean, when I took this stand, I didn't know how you know, I actually didn't know if I would be let out of my contract. 
I didn't know if publishing would turn its back on me. I just didn't care. I was willing to take that chance. I think anytime you make a stand, there's something at risk. Every time I, I voice an opinion, the blowback is always incredibly painful. And so I think anytime I open my mouth these days, I'm risking something, which is that my sanity. So okay, that's that's an interesting point because for someone who is so opinionated and who has such a you know a large platform, whether that be online or even in your writing, the fact that you still consider it painful. Talk to me about that. Like, do you still actually feel that when people are you know so negative and and just say horrible things online or or disapproving in some way? How, does that still actually like prick you? Well, not the disapproval, but the cruelty. Um, the cruelty is elaborate and it's nonstop. And yeah, I'm human, so it hurts. And yet you do it anyway because? Because it has to be done. That's powerful. And I think a lot of, a lot of people, um, and in particular, we've, you know, we've seen the narrative and the wave of women in particular right now who are feeling like something has to be done, whatever that is in their own lives, whether that be a, p- a public political stance or I'm hearing from women every day who are saying, you know, I have to pursue my passion now. I have to have a life of impact. But I remember um, you wrote um, you wrote a piece the night of the election called The Audacity of Hopelessness. And in it, you said, I feel hopeless right now. I'm incredibly disappointed, but I can't wallow in these feelings for long. I will not. Tomorrow the sun will rise and the day will be a lot less joyful than I imagined, but I'll get through it. We all will. And I thought you you perfectly um, encapsulated how a lot of people felt, certainly, on that day, how a lot of people are still feeling. So I'm curious to know, how do you get hope back? Right. Like we've seen a lot of conversation about joy and acts of joy. Joy is resistance. And I, you know, I I get how to do joy. Right. You can create joy. You can manifest it. You can do all these things. Hope is something different. It almost feels like once it's shattered, there's you got to go through a lot of work to get that back. What is your if you have it back? How? How did you get it? Oh, I don't have it back yet. I mean, the president, the current president is such a spectacular failure that, I mean, how do you have hope when Betsy DeVos was just confirmed as education secretary, even though she has no experience as an educator or an administrator? It's just weird. But, you know, I have nieces and a nephew, and they're bright and fascinating and fearless. And so I have to find my way back to hope for them, for other people's children, even for myself. I mean, I'm only 42, so um, I'm not going to live the rest of my life feeling hopeless, that's for sure. Yeah. We have to keep doing the work that we're doing, that we believe in, no matter what it is. And, uh, you know, as a writer, I'm going to keep writing and just keep resisting fascism and just holding this administration accountable, which I think we've done a really good job of so far. I've been really impressed with what people have done. And I hope that we can sustain this level of energy because we're going to need to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's certainly the little bit of hope I'm I'm finding and getting back day by day has been in people and in, in people's response to this, which is Fitting, I think, because what it seems like was lost wasn't hope in a system, right? Most people I know who had a you know realistic perception of the world did not have hope in any sort of system, but had hope in people. 
Um, and that's what was what I think was lost um, during the election. And so it seems like having hope in people again is the only thing that will will, you know, resolve this challenge is that the people are responding and resisting and standing up and kind of making beautiful things out of the mud that we're in right now. Yes, it's just super encouraging. It is. It is. Um, so let me ask you this, and this is a big, big question, so break it down however you need to. And I, I know that one answer probably won't cover it all. But one of the reasons I love talking to writers so much, and they're kind of my oracles, is because I found that writers tend to have a lot of insight on life, whether or not they, you know, no matter what the topic is that they write about, they tend to be very perceptive and insightful. And so I'm very curious, uh, and I think of you the same way. So I'm curious to know, what has writing taught you about life that you're using in this moment? Oh, well, you know, persistence and being relentless uh, really goes a long way. That's what writing has taught me about life. That's amazing. So we... um we do this uh, little, it's a game on the call where I ask you, what would you say if these three people called you? And you can say anything that you want to them. Um, the first one is, what would you say if Hillary Clinton called you today? I would tell her that I thought she did a great job. I know that's not the popular thing to say, but I thought she did a great job and she fought a hard fight and she could have I, you know, she did a great job. That's what I would have told her. Okay. Here's another one of your faves. What would you say if Beyonce called you today? Oh, I would tell her that she's God. <laughs> That's the best answer. Short, sweet, and to the point. All right. And last but not least, what would you say if 25-year-old Roxanne called you today? I would tell her it gets so much better. It really, really does. How did it get better? Well, I can pay my bills now. <laughs> that is a big plus. I mean, financial security is something that people take really for granted, but I don't. It, just feeling secure and having a little bit of money in the bank and paying my bills on time every month and uh, just having the freedom to, to do what I want. Oh, I mean, it's priceless. But it's an important point to make because a lot of times people view folks as, who are successful now and and either forget or maybe don't even know that there was a point when they were not financially secure and stable and when they struggled just like everyone else. Um, so it's an interesting point that you made, which is like, no, clearly it wasn't always like this. You know, um, what did you do? What did you do to kind of get you through the times when you weren't able to kind of, to say that that confidently when you didn't have the financial security or the, the freedom that you have now? What did you do to, to get through? Oh, I don't know. I just did it. I mean, the, the reality is that you just go from one day to the next. I didn't do anything specific other than I worked a lot and I was very lucky in that I had a safety net uh, because of my parents who um, were well off. And, uh, you know, I just I just got through it. it you know, I think like people are always, like looking for magical answers, but I, I, I just did it because there was no other choice. Forward was the only way. Right. I think that's, I mean, I think it's fair. I think it's fair to say, you know, you, you you get, you live by living, you do it by doing it. But I do think there's something special about when people get through tough times and come through still with their passion intact or still, I mean, you're, you, you, you didn't just do it, you did it and you continued to write while doing it, right? There are probably a lot of ways you could, could have done it, could have gotten through, could have survived that did not involve you pursuing your passion and, um, 
and really focusing on your gift and your talent in the world. And unfortunately, a lot of people have to. So I think when people, that's a lot of times what people are like wondering, how did you not just come through? You didn't just survive ragtag. You came through with this beautiful, beautiful gift that is now, you know, a part of how you're known in the world. And that's, I think that is a, a unique thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I guess it doesn't feel like that special to me because it was just my life and I was living it. But I wrote because writing was what kept me, like, writing is what gave me joy and, and hope during the sort of, you know, the broke years that pretty much everyone has during their 20s when you're just trying to make it and you're living paycheck to paycheck without health insurance. And writing was the thing I could afford to do, honestly. Uh, writing is free. And uh, writing kept me amused because I was having fun doing it. I love that. So our, our last question, and I'll, I'll just ask you this, since your book is Difficult Women and it's I'm halfway through it now and I mean, the stories are haunting. That's probably the best word that I can use for it. I saw someone else call them dark. And yeah, I mean, I guess dark, but it's 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 more haunting because you can't you don't forget the characters um, or or the scenarios that they're in. And I read that you said that, you know, these women might be considered difficult, but more often than not, it's other people who are difficult or other scenarios that are difficult for them. So what would you say to the young women now who might be listening, who, you know, she herself is called a difficult woman, which means she has some opinions, um, maybe outspoken, but also has had some difficult things happen to her, right? I know a lot of your work has... um, conversations about violence in it, whether it be physical or sexual or even structural, what would you say to her in this moment um, for how she can show up in the world and answer a call to to action? I would tell her to be even more difficult than she already is. I, I think that it's time to be loud and big and brave and Uh, It's okay to be vulnerable while doing all of these things, but just be difficult. I really encourage women to do that. Thank you so much. Well, you are a difficult inspiration, and I know I'm going to go be even more difficult and even more loud than I was before I talked to you. So thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us today, Roxanne. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I don't know about y'all, but I am committed to being difficult. Difficult women in our art, our voice, our questions, our ideas, our very being shakes up the world. So thanks to Roxanne for that reminder and for her new book, Difficult Women. This episode was produced by Samara Brieger and The Call is a production of Man Repeller. I'm your host, Erica Williams-Simon, but you can call me E. And I never asked you to do this, but I should. Tell me how you feel about these conversations. If you love them, if you want to hear more, if there are other people you want to talk to, tweet me. I'm at Created by Erica. Share these episodes. My goal is to get as many people, not just women, people as possible answering their call. And so until we meet again, keep working, keep fighting, keep living, and of course, answer your call. Bye. Calling, 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 calling.